You're listening to the Together in Literacy podcast, a podcast for educators, families, and advocates that connects the research of reading, dyslexia awareness, and the whole child. We're your hosts, Casey Harrison and Emily Gibbons. As two literacy dyslexia specialists, we've come together to talk about literacy, dyslexia, and the connection to the social emotional impact that it has on our students, their families, and the educators who serve them. We welcome you to join us on this exciting and educational journey into dyslexia as we come together in literacy. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us at www.togetherinliteracy.com. Thank you for joining us today. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to the Together in Literacy podcast. We are, let's see, season three, episode four, and I'm here with the wonderful Casey Harrison. Hi, Casey. Hello, everyone. And we have a guest that we will be introducing shortly that we're super excited about because we just love having guests. And at the time we're recording this, it's a Friday, so we just got like that nice Friday vibe going on and feeling good that it's a nice beautiful weekend coming up in October that's right all right so we always kick off with some feedback that we get from our listeners and we just are so grateful don't forget that you can subscribe to the podcast first of all because that way you find out whenever we release a new episode but also please if you love the podcast take a minute to leave us some feedback and a rating, and we'd love to share that on a future episode. This one is coming from GRB1234, and it's called Out of This World. Casey and Emily are a dynamic duo sharing their amazing knowledge. I've learned something new from each and every episode I've listened to, and you definitely will too. I am a first grade teacher who is very passionate about teaching my littles all things about reading and how to grow as readers. They are dyslexia specialists. Their expertise goes beyond just students with dyslexia, but touches all learners. Thank you, Casey and Emily. You are my favorite podcast to listen to. Oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. Thank you so much, GRB1234, for that just amazing really kind and thoughtful feedback. We really just are so passionate about helping out uh, not just families, but classroom teachers too, and other interventionists. So thank you for that. To learn more, once again, togetherinliteracy.com. You want to definitely go to that website so you can see all the episodes, the blog, and we even have merch, which is Lots of fun. And the holidays are coming up. So hint, hint. I think somebody in your life really needs some Together in Literacy podcast merch. Yeah, yeah, I do. I can think of a few people. How about you, Casey? I can too. Yes. Yeah. All right. We're ready. So who is our guest today? I, I love the feedback that we got because this really links in well to our guest for today. And we have Heather O'Donnell here with us. Um, And Heather is 
someone who is practicing what they talk about, just like Emily and I do. And I think that is so important. So um, Heather it has a master's of science and education, and she began her uh, career as a classroom teacher, just as Emily and I did. And so working in both special and general education classroom settings, where she left the classroom in 2018 to open up her private practice, which is called New Paltz multi-sensory and it's an online and in-person tutoring practice in New Paltz, New York. Um, and so after identifying a new a need for uh, private multi-sensory reading instruction in her community, the practice has grown and she now has a team of 13 tutors providing online and in-person multi-sensory reading, writing, and math instruction to students in over 10 states. That's amazing, Heather. All right. And so in addition to all of those wonderful things, she also um, works on providing resources that our Orton-Gillingham approach um, and diagnostically provide that explicit instruction so that all kids can learn to love uh, learning again. So we're excited to have Heather here with us. Thank you, Heather. Thank you guys so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to it. So Heather, one of the things that we were talking about um, is that, you know, Emily and I, we were both classroom teachers as well. And we made that same shift that you did to that private intervention setting. So we would really love for our listeners to know just a little bit more about how and why you decided to transition as a classroom teacher to provide private reading intervention. <laughs> I always wish I had a better story to go with this because, you know, it is such an important thing and I feel like I truly just kind of stumbled into it. I was working as a K-2 self-contained autism classroom teacher, which I've always said I have two passions in education and especially in special education, dyslexia and learning disabilities and autism. So I was working as a K-2 self-contained classroom teacher, and it's a lot. You know, the school I was working with, was, it was the school I was working in, five minutes to 50 minutes away from my house, so there was a long commute, and I am not someone that is very good about setting work limits, and so I was doing stuff on the weekends and at night, and I mean, how can you not? You know, when you're working with a population like that, you really want to put yourself forward in every way possible. And it was a lot. So in the at the end of the 2018 school year, um, you know, things changed. Um, a position a little bit closer to home. A few things happened. The summer rolled by and I didn't have a job lined up for the fall. So I was like, maybe I'm going to take a little break from my passion for autism and I'm going to focus on my passion for working with students with dyslexia and learning disabilities. So I opened an office, you know, I did the online shingle, hung up the sign, so to speak, and off I went. And, you know, in my community, it was really kind of the first offering that sort of happened. And it was me in this little office on, in downtown New Paltz in the beginning. And then the people kept coming and the people kept coming. And then when COVID happened, it was like, oh, I either am going to be incredibly busy for the rest of my life, or I need to hire a team to help me. And that's sort of where the... Uh, the pivot in the business came. Yeah, I love that. And it's been fun for me because you and I, although we've never met in person, um, we yeah. have been friends online and I've, I've witnessed you stepping into this new role and it's so exciting to see and just the impact that you're having within your own community, <clears throat> New York, but also beyond. So it's very exciting. Well, thank you. On a good day, it's very exciting. Other days, I'm like, what am I doing here? But no, it, it's truly been an honor to help the number of families that we've been able to help. I need to go through and 
count it up again, but by, by my records, we've been able to work with and support over 250 families, which is really in five years, which is a lot. And I'm really proud of that. Absolutely. And on a, on a personal note, I have known Heather for a few years now and I've gotten to know her and her practice. And if I hope she doesn't mind me, um, tooting her horn a little bit, but um, she has worked personally with two out of the four of my own children. And we are incredibly grateful for Miss Heather in our lives. And Miss Heather is in New York, but we're in the Boston area. So um, my own children, we know, um, love her and mm -hmm. have just been so grateful for the, for the wonderful work she has done with both of them. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's been an honor to work with them and they are both such great kids. <laughs> so, um, not only are we able to connect with one another, I think on, on a, uh, an educational level to be able to speak from the reading intervention point of view, but also on a personal note as well, just, um, just so grateful for the work that you do. And that number is incredible, 250 students and counting, um, really to be just, there is just such, I think, a, such a gratifying feeling knowing that that good work is spreading. And you said over 10 states too. Wow. So um, fantastic. All right. So we uh, in the Together in Literacy podcast are trying to uh, not only, I guess, speak to educators, but also families, but we love to talk about the whole child as well and focus on some of the strengths that we see in the children we work with, because I think sometimes we tend to focus on the deficits a, uh, a lot, actually. So when you think about some of the students that you have worked with over the years, sort of give us a window into some of the positive aspects of your current role? Sure. I mean, I think there are so many positives um, and it obviously changes child by child, but I've definitely worked with some students who have had amazing artistic talents or amazing um, sculpting talents, you know, the arts, some of the students I've worked with, I mean, you know, I'll, I can sit here and draw a stick figure and then they're like, no, 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 I got it. And I'm like, okay, yes, you do. Way your, your people are way better than mine. And sports talents. I mean, some of, some of the kids we work with are incredibly gifted in sports and we work really hard in our practice to respect that because when a child is struggling so much at school and they do have a strength in sports, you know, sports practices and tutoring don't always align. So we do work really hard to give our families who, especially with older students who have those strengths, um, a little leeway as we're figuring out schedules, because it is really important. We would never want a student to not be able to do something that they excel in when school can be such a frustrating place. I've worked with some students who can narrate some amazing stories. They're just so creative and wonderful imaginations. And perhaps their skills in actively writing their stories themselves are a little delayed, but they can narrate it. Um, parents scribe, you know, with, with text to speech and all kinds of technology like that. I mean, some of the things that um, kids are just thinking about, kids with dyslexia are thinking about just blow my mind because there's so there are such strengths there mm -hmm. that are not necessarily correlating with those reading delays that are making school challenge and have that impact that we associate with um, the the diagnosis of dyslexia. Yeah. Right. as well and you know that's always the challenge there when we know that there are these 
incredible strengths that these students have, how to balance school, <clears throat> perhaps private sessions, and not take away from those activities. And um, there have even been times I've had a student that was in a, a science competition and preparing for that. So just finding ways to shift a time around or a day of the week or something to make that possible made a huge difference for him. And um, we were so grateful to be able to offer that. But I know it's, you speak to the point that it's so important, I think, to help us find those strengths in those kids too. Absolutely. It's crucial, I think, because they work so hard. You know, they work so hard every single day to do the things that um, they're required to do in school and that their peers can do it a little bit more easily. I think celebrating their strengths and making time for that is crucial to their confidence and their self-esteem. Yeah, I agree. And and I think too, if, if at, we can find ways to bring their strengths into the sessions, that that's really powerful as well. So if we have a student, you know, who tells these amazing stories, but they have this hurdle of getting it out on paper and we show them that, you know, well, we bring that in and we let them scribe, you know, we scribe for them and they write these books. Um, it's really powerful. I had a little one who he loved Zelda the video games. And so, and he was very much not wanting to write anything, but he wanted to tell me all about Zelda and all about these stories. And so I was like, well, let's write up, let's create a new chapter in Zelda. And that hooked him. And he has written two short stories about it, um, where I would, you know, type it out and he would, we would work on the language pieces. But I think if we can bring their interests and strengths into our work, it's so powerful. I agree. I, I've definitely had more than one uh, Minecraft fan in my uh, in my experience. So I've learned a lot about that. And I actually, um, last week, I used a decodable book about dinosaurs at a higher level with a student um, because my goal for her is really just practicing writing and getting things down. And, you know, I asked her to check it out for other kids and give me her opinion. And so she went through it and critiqued it and was like, well, this isn't accurate and this isn't accurate. And I was like, wow, it sounds like we need to write our own dinosaur book. And so next week we're going to start working on that. And, you know, when you start throwing out, when you're writing words like Jurassic and Cretaceous, like you're getting that handwriting practice in for sure. But there's that interest, um, which I think is so important when you're working with kids for whom some of this is really, really hard. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's a misunderstanding that, that in private practice or when you're doing interventions that you can't bring in interests, which is just not the case. I so, agree. Yeah. Right. And Casey, I, you know, I was thinking about the episode that we did towards the end of season two on neurodivergency mm -hmm. and how important was we were addressing, talking about strengths in that. Definitely check that episode out if you're listening now and curious about neurodivergent learners Absolutely. and how we can showcase their strengths maybe in different ways, which I think both Heather and Casey have beautifully described, you know, in, in certain situations. So Casey, I know my, my last question to Heather kind of overlapped with your next one. But. That's okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to jump down. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so then Heather. You know, collectively as a group of educators speaking on this podcast today, and we all directly work with children who have dyslexia. And we find that 
you know, we really do play a special and often critical role in the lives of our students and their families. And so some of the things, what have you found to be effective in your own private practice when it comes to communication with the families? Like, are there common questions that you find that come up when you first meet with a new family? That is a really great question. I think honesty is really important with families. I think often when families first reach out, they know there's an issue, but they're not quite sure if they're in the right place. And then they're kind of looking for a little bit of a guide. Yeah. And I'm speaking more from the lens of the families I work with directly, although I do interact with other, you know, other families in our practice at any time, anyone will email me and they do and ask a question and I will jump right in. And when a family comes to us, they do an online consultation with me and I have a conversation with them and I learn about their child and we talk about what we can offer and things like that. So that is a great point because at that point, people will say, well, you know, I, I think there's something going on with the reading, but I'm just not sure. And then, you know, I'll often say, oh, is there anyone in the family that has struggled with reading? And, you know, often there is. And then like, okay, you know, check. There's a family history, which increases the odds, not a certainty. And I think families are often feeling overwhelmed and just need someone to sort of say, okay, we've got this. Here's what we can offer. You know, if school's a very strong struggle, you know, I might refer them to an advocate or, you know, uh, someone who can help them figure out that that piece if there's more of a struggle going on. But I think the questions that I get from families are heartfelt and a new world is kind of opening up for them. Like just today, driving into the office, I got, I spoke with a new client's mom and she was noticing that her child was schwalling the, the letter sounds. And she was like, is the sound by sound working? Because I'm hearing that, you know, he's saying, buh, or she's saying, you know, duh. And I was like, oh, that's called schwalling. And here's why that's where, you know, here's what's happening. We're working on teaching those letter sounds with accuracy. And, you know, let me remember to send you something later, that kind of thing. So I, I think- we try, or I certainly try, and I know my tutors do the same, we try to be a guide for families and help them navigate this new world of coordinating a really bright and capable child who's struggling in school. You know, what do they need to share with the teacher? What can we, you know, some families want extra work in between sessions. For other families, it's all, you know, just getting to the session is all that they can manage and we respect that as well. So I think that is sort of what we work to try to be as a guide and a resource for those kinds of questions that they can shoot over in an email or a quick phone call just so that they feel more comfortable uh, making sure their child's learning needs are met. Absolutely. I love that you brought that up because Emily and I've talked about this previously, but you know, by the time that the parents are coming to see us, they're either a in frustration mode or B panicking, or maybe just feel like they haven't yet been heard. And so I agree walking with them on this journey so that they can truly understand what dyslexia is, what the impacts will be for their child and how best to help them is such an important role that we have as people that are working with children with dyslexia. Yeah. I know that initial meeting sometimes can feel there's just very, very strong emotions mm -hmm. that can come in there, confusion, or uh, a big sense of relief, like, oh my goodness, I feel like I have finally found someone that will get my child or will be able to help them. I know that the feeling of relief I see when things seem like, you know, we've got a plan in place, like, you know, we're, we're putting things in motion because it is overwhelming, but that I, I see quite a bit, which is great. And they just want, I think, to see 
that momentum continue. You really do. But I think that, as you had mentioned, being a guide and and developing that relationship is just so important, especially as they are trying to navigate special education, I think, in the public school setting too, and figuring out meetings and so forth. It's just so much to to factor in there. Okay. Just gonna switch gears just a little bit here. So let's imagine we were so we were all classroom teachers, but now we work uh, in the private intervention setting, which we all really love. And I think that we have a, a, a unique perspective. We know what it's like to have been classroom teachers and seeing these students uh, with dyslexia in our classrooms, right? And now getting to work with them in a one-on-one setting. And, you know, I remember back being a classroom teacher, I didn't know whether I would want to be one-on-one with students as, or in, or would I miss having the whole classroom setting versus being one-on-one with a student. And I just love my role now so much. And people wonder, well, do you miss being a classroom teacher? I'm like, well, you know, I really enjoy, like there's some things that I miss, but I really enjoy what I'm doing now um, quite a bit. So if you were to speak I had the opportunity to speak to a, a room full, I don't know, maybe larger than a room full of classroom teachers about the students with learning challenges today. What advice would you offer them? That's been a big question, but okay. from what are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, you know, I think it's a really important question because I think every classroom teacher faced every year with new kids, you know, there, there are so many needs in a classroom situation. So I think ultimately the first thing to think about is what can you as a classroom teacher reasonably do? And then what can you set in place for the future for this child as they move through school? Typically the first thing I would tell a Certainly a parent, but I think it's relevant for a teacher too, is if there's a significant learning difference displaying in the classroom, there needs to be an evaluation. And typically starting with a school evaluation, it's free. It's a great starting point. It, you know, will cover all the aspects of learning and it can provide the first step along the road to determining whether this child is a child whose needs can be met in the, you know, tier one classroom, the mainstream classroom, or with small group intervention, or if there needs to be more. I know as a classroom teacher, sometimes the question of getting a child an evaluation can be different on the school environment. Some schools maybe are not comfortable with teachers approaching parents suggesting an evaluation. So there's all kinds of complexities. But I think ultimately, what is reasonable for one classroom teacher to manage and, you know, can incorporating some more structured literacy be a benefit to this child? Great. You know, that's a good place to start. If it's helping this child, it might help other children. All that is fantastic. But ultimately, you know, most classroom teachers have kids for only one year, and then it's the next year, and then it's the next year. So considering sort of that long-term plan for the student, whether there's a school review team, you know, some kind of place where you can refer a student you have questions about within your school system, just to start thinking about what's going to be a benefit to the student in middle school or high school, which is a hard thing to think about in first or second grade, but it comes up fast. Yes. And, you know, it's I often found that when we are in some of those special education meetings and looking at eligibility or just having like an annual review, the look long-term was, did you ever get that feeling that it was kind of frowned upon? 
because it was like we could only talk about what was going on within that one particular school year. But I agree with you that we do have to look further down the road, that what we put in place, especially in intervention now or whatever goals we meet, yes, they will benefit long, uh, more long term. But I found it, I think, challenging as a classroom teacher in those particular meetings to even mention that sometimes. I don't know. Did you, anybody anybody with me on that? I yeah. think it depends on the school environment. And I mean, I agree with you. You know, if you're dealing with a first grader, you can't focus on what's happening in high school. I mean, I guess I, what I'm trying to get at is more, is this a child whose needs can be met year after year in the general ed classroom with no support? You know, and if the teacher's inclination is no, you know, what what are the school resources to begin the process of evaluating that? Because I think it puts a lot of pressure on a classroom teacher when you have that right. child significantly struggling and you have 25 other kids and you're trying to help that child, you know, you know, so if anything, I guess I'm, I'm trying to offer it in terms of, if not a release, just sort of a, you know, you have to do what you can do for that child this year, but what can be put in place for the future right. as much as the system will allow? Because I agree with you, Emily, the system is not forward thinking, shall we? Think? Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wish it was more, I guess was my, my common cry. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think this kind of leads us into our next question in that, you know, the science of read has definitely picked up momentum over the past few years and it is starting to reach more and more classroom teachers who have wonderings about what that is, what that, you know, means for within their classroom. And there certainly is circling a lot of misunderstanding about that as well. You know, so there's both things that are being promoted that are true and the things that are maybe not so true that are being promoted on social media. But we also have a lot more research dissemination that's happening and podcasts and things like that to help teachers sort of try to navigate this, you know, I don't really want to say shift because <laughs> this is not new research and this has been something that has been in a lot of classrooms for decades and certainly in appropriate interventions for decades. But, you know, we are starting to see this shift kind of starting to reach the classroom teachers. And so, you know, I think it's really exciting to see the conversations that are starting to come out about structured literacy in the classroom. But, you know, for those who are just beginning their journey or who maybe are just trying to navigate that within their schools, what advice would you offer to not only the teachers, but maybe to the school districts as well that are ready to kind of start making these official shifts? That is a very multifaceted question. Okay, let's dive in. I think, first of all, I love the fact that the awareness is growing. I was at the Reading League conference just last week in Syracuse, New York, and it was amazing. I mean, the energy in the room, the all the rooms, there were lots of rooms involved, you know, the speakers, it was just fantastic to see a mix of people, you know, private practice like myself, classroom teachers, administrator. It was just really, really awesome. And I believe they had to cut it off. You know, the conference sold out. There was a wait list. And in fact, they're moving the location next year so they can accommodate more people because it's just grown to the point that, you know, Syracuse, New York can no longer accommodate it. So I thought that was really awesome. And I think that is emblematic of the fact that people are learning more and realizing that there is research out there and that this can inform classroom instruction. So I would say for teachers, it's finding someone that you trust, someone that has certified, trained, you know, a qualified professional 
with social media, you know, there's lots and lots of people out there. You can find lots on Instagram and Facebook. I'm more on Instagram. I feel like Instagram is sort of more where that stuff's happening these days, but you know, watch, learn from them there. Like you said, there's lots of podcasts and things like that. And just, you know, start to take things in, look at what you are able to do, because I think it's really important with classroom teachers. If you are teaching in a balanced literacy school and you are handed a curriculum, you have to be careful about what you, what changes you can make. And, you know, you might have to begin to advocate with fellow teachers and, you know, there's a whole lot involved with that. It's not always as easy as just close your door and do it. Yeah. You can't. Exactly. Unfortunately. But I also think in terms of school districts, it's really a matter of administrators, you know, becoming interested. The Right to Read film was a really great film. I'm I'm not sure if either of you guys caught that one. Yep. So Mm -hmm. I really liked that particular, I mean, there's so many great documentaries out there, but I liked that particular one because it did have a message for school boards and administrators that was very clear, you know, getting an administrator who'd be willing to watch that. It's really powerful. Um, You know, I'm in an area that is quite behind some of this change, but with the right people in place, the change does start to come. You know, my own district has gone through a, a lot of administrative upheaval in the last few years, at, but our K-2 school rolled out UFLY this year and is training teachers in UFLY, which is huge for, um, you know, my local school district. And this year, there's they're starting committees at the three to five school to begin discussing improving curriculum and options along those lines. So I really think as administrators learn more and become aware of the importance of these relatively small in the terms of all the things school districts do every day, changes that can have such a great impact, I think um, the change sort of follow. But for a classroom teacher who is perhaps finding that their the curriculum they're handed day-to-day to use is less than ideal, I'm not sure there's a quick and easy answer, unfortunately, except to find people that whose message and background and information resonates with you and start learning more. Yeah. And I would say to piggyback on that, you know, what I'm seeing some districts do um, with good intentions is they're providing teachers with curriculum that is rooted in the research, but perhaps not providing that ongoing support or training. And I think that piece, you know, if you're someone who is advocating for change in your district, I think that piece is critical. I think if we are not supporting our teachers through ongoing training, we are not going to make the impact that we want to for our kids. That is so necessary. Yeah, I actually agree. Yeah, and I think that has been the common concern Mm -hmm. when it comes to the way school districts structure their training. And sometimes their training is, a lot of times, due to budget constraints so that they may only train say like the reading specialists and think that that will be imparted onto the classroom teacher which places I think a lot of undue burden and stress on and overwhelm on the reading specialists within that district mm-hmm. well, and it puts um, in a position of like it shifts the hierarchy instead of it being support, it it can really 
muddy the waters for that a little bit in terms of who's monitoring who and things like that versus if we just really provide appropriate training and ongoing support. I think that's the piece that, you know, yes, we might do that initial however many day training, but it's, it's really the ongoing support when you're in it, when you're teaching, that's why if you go through, you know, or in Gillingham or, you know, through Elta, through MSLAC, you have a practicum. And that is the purpose of that, to have that ongoing reflection and training and observations. And with any training, you, even within our Orton Gillingham training, we know every year to renew, we have to submit that we have completed so many hours, you know, within that particular background. So it's the same thing if we're going to offer this to schools that there has to be, as Casey is just emphasizing, the ongoing support because there is not only because of teacher turnover, but also just to not only keep up with providing the ongoing support, perhaps as a population might might shift or Mm -hmm. as new research comes out or as updates are made in certain curriculums. Uh, There's such a strong argument for continuing ongoing support, and it'll only be beneficial when you do make that I think long-term commitment rather than shortchanging in the beginning. I totally agree. And that I think unfortunately is the downside of the close your door and teach, you know, what you know best for your students model, because it isn't, there isn't that support. There isn't that everybody's doing it all at once. And then, you know, again, I've been really impressed pleased with the signs of change that I've been able to witness in my local school district. And then another another example of that change, you know, there's a SUNY New Paltz, State University of New Paltz campus here in New, in, um, New Paltz, shockingly. Funny how that works. <laughs> and they received a gift and they have rolled out a 35-hour micro-credential in the science of reading at a reasonable price point for teachers who are interested in learning more. And for for me, again, when you have a school that is churning out teachers, because that is one of the primary education institutions in our area, getting that kind of background and awareness, that is also, you know, it just makes it harder for change to happen. So it's been, I, I believe the program, the program just launched this fall. So it's in its early days. And I've, all the things I've heard have indicated it's been going well, but if there's a teacher out there interested, I believe it's done online. So you do not have to be local to New Paltz. You know, you can uh, try Googling that and see if that is something of interest because the training is so important and it's really important to learn from a qualified teacher, a qualified professor, because it is easy to go too fast and get a little confused and that can impact student performance. And I bring this up quite a bit. Dead of having that closed door situation, it will only benefit teacher buy-in when teachers feel supported and have the training and feel like they are being listened to and heard and given what they need at the time that they need it, teacher buy-in will be even greater. They'll buy into the fact that, yes, this is what is working for my students, not like, all right, well, that's what the trainer said, but I'm just going to, you know, do it this way instead. (laughs) So you hear the word fidelity so many times again and again and again, I don't want to 
put you know a bad light on that. But yes, I and mean, we are going to train people in structured literacy methods or in the science of reading. Yes, we want to really maximize teacher buy-in as much as we possibly can. And you know, Jennifer Tanoff from the Read Foundation, I know, has talked about how the, all the beautiful work they do down in Florida with, with OG training and how it has only benefited their teacher retention in school. People want to stay and see the results as a result of their OG training, which is so, so beautiful and and needed. Yep. All right. Wow. We really dug into that question. I just love it. <laughs> on and on about that, right, Casey? Yeah. Okay. All right. So now we're going to shift back to our families. We love our families. All right. So what words of encouragement, Heather, would you offer to families of children with dyslexia. So if we're speaking directly to them, what are we saying? We are saying all the things that their kids can do, you know, like we talked about the strengths already, you know, your child is amazing at drawing sports, soccer, you know, your child tells wonderful stories. Your child has such a great vocabulary. You know, all, I think families just, we are telling them what their children can do and then we are, you know, being honest about the areas that they need support in, but we are focusing on the positive, accentuating the areas in which a child excels, because that is a huge part of a, a child with dyslexia's experience. And I think, like we were talking about CSE meetings, unfortunately, sometimes when you're involved with the special education system, the system is a little bit more like, here are the shortcomings, here's what we need to fix. And parents don't hear enough. Here are the things your child is really great at. And that's what makes them so wonderful. And we're working on the things they need support in. And I think when we do that, when we focus on the strengths and we share those with the parents, I think that really shifts the conversation and it makes parents and like families feel that their child is really seen and really understood. And that, that then leads to them trusting that, that their child is in good hands when they work with you because they, they feel safe and they feel that you actually know their child as a whole, instead of just looking at the deficit model. Right. Right. I think they'll trust the process more Yeah, yeah as well. Yeah, I think, no. I think when a parent feel like when a child feels safe, I agree with you, Casey, but when a parent feels safe too, mm -hmm. when a parent feels like my child is understood and recognized here, then they're more willing to ask their questions and learn a little bit more. And, you know, then come the book referrals and here's this great article and things yep. like that. But in that initial, you know, a parent can't feel safe and ready to learn until they know that their child is safe and ready to learn. And I think that is where we need to start. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So thinking about some recommendations for dyslexia or perhaps the science of reading, do you have any favorites that you'd like to share with our listeners? I mean, I think any, I love Emily Hanford's articles. I think they are well-written and they are very clear and they're very readable for families. I often refer those, or, you know, I send those to families when they first come on board because she's done such a wonderful job of laying out um, some of the challenges that have taken place in reading instruction on a national as well as local level. Going along with that, I also love the Soul to Story podcast. I think, you know, we live in a podcast age and parents really like being able to listen to something on the go as opposed to uh, reading an article from time to time. You know, there's so many great books. Um, Dr. Shaywitz, Overcoming Dyslexia, that's one I refer a lot. I'm a personally a huge fan of Natalie Wexler's um, The Knowledge Gap. 
you know, I'm not sure that's one I necessarily would recommend to a parent, but certainly to another professional. I think it's a fantastic read and it's a great reminder of how when we're looking at literacy in the classroom, we really do need that content and that science and social studies. You know, it all comes together and it all works off of each other and it's for the better of our students. And there's the Knowledge Matters podcast that goes along that came out this summer that goes along with that. And there are just so many more. I mean, I've been really happy that there's been more um, press in the New York Times and in Time Magazine. There was a great article, I think it was last year, Newsweek. I mean, I think the radar is just people yeah. are more aware, more mainstream publications are writing on this topic. And I think all of that is fantastic for raising awareness and helping that family out there that's struggling know what to do and how to help. I mean, I had an online consultation with a new client this week and she was like, I heard sold a story and here we are two weeks later. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, that made me happy to hear because she heard the podcast and resonated. This is what my child's going through. This is what I need to do next. And I think there are so many families out there still feeling like I see what my child's going through, but I don't know what to do next. Absolutely. I feel like publications like Education Weekly really, I think, grabbed on much, much more. We see even more articles coming out. And it's just so wonderful when even you hear someone listening to Sold a Story for the very first time, it is still resonating, even, you know, coming out just a few years ago, but still so, so relevant and, and, um, just so important to listen to. So if you are one of those people that has not listened to Soul the Story, please make sure that you do. All right. So Heather, how? Uh, we first of all, thank you so much for sharing all of your tips and advice and having this conversation with us. And how can people, uh, if they would like to perhaps reach out to you or keep in touch or learn more about what you do? Sure. We have a website. It's at www.newpultsmultisensory.com. And New Paltz is spelled N-E-W-P-A-L-T-Z. I know it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a tricky one to spell. And then we are on social media. We have a Pinterest book, Instagram, Twitter, although I don't spend as much time tracking our Twitter at New Paltz Multisensory Tutoring. Wonderful. And yeah, we would love it. If you would certainly go and check that website out and to learn more about what Heather is doing, all the good work she's doing with her students and beyond. Once again, we are on togetherinliteracy.com. You can listen to all of the episodes there. Subscribe, please uh, leave us some feedback, but also don't forget to check out, um, we all always have a blog post to accompany each episode with plenty of links and information in there to extend your learning, share it with someone that you think will benefit. Perhaps it is a fellow educator, but perhaps it's someone in school administration intent. Maybe there's a wonderful school admin that would benefit from listening to the Together in Literacy podcast. (laughs) Okay. But we would love to hear from you. So certainly reach out. And Casey and I uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to having more guests this season in season three. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye everyone. Bye.
Thank you so much for tuning in to the Together in Literacy podcast today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a positive review and subscribe to the podcast. Each comment means a great deal to us. And if you have any questions for us that you would like answered on the Together in Literacy podcast, please contact us at support at togetherinliteracy.com. Be sure to visit the website www.togetherinliteracy.com for show notes, downloads, and goodies. Thank you for helping us spread the word about the Together in Literacy podcast. We'll see you next time.